Hello and welcome to Barks Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the stories from the legendary Carl Barks, creator of Scrooge McDuck and writer and artist of the greatest Donald and Scrooge comics of all time. Join us as we explore his longer adventure stories in their chronological publishing order, as well as select 10 pagers in whatever order we want. We'll talk about what makes them so enduring, their historical context, and how they hold up today. So get out your reprint and get ready to enjoy our remarks. Welcome back to Barks Remarks. I'm Mark Severino, a grown man who loves duck comics, and I also love stories about outer space and space physics. So this should be a really good one to talk about in that regard. I am joined by a returning guest. I'm joined by Jeff Moses, who is also known by his internet alias, GeoX, Welcome back to you, Jeff. Thank you. Glad to be back. Glad to be here. Yeah, I've I've got you on for our, there are, I would say that there are two really iconic Carl Barks adventures that are set in space. I had you on for the 24 karat moon, and I've got you back for this one for for Island in the Sky. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect uh, to be here for both of these. Yeah, I agree. These are uh, certainly Barks's most memorable, I would say, you know, science fiction sort of space ventures. Yeah, there there are definitely a number of other stories. Um, we we recently got to cover. Oh, uh, what's it called? The Impervium Money Bin. There's um, Interplanetary Postman. There's the Looney Lunar Gold Rush. There, there's a number of other a number of other stories that that range from kind of fluffy to forgetful. A few of them are even pretty good. But um, I think these two are the ones that probably for most fans they really stand out. So mm-hmm. um, we, we can talk about we can compare them a little bit they don't necessarily beg comparison but uh but as as his most notable space adventures i'm i'm gonna force the point <laughs> by all means uh and and uh and and there really is a lot to talk about so so before we get into it though um i've had you on a couple of times here at this point but i'd i'd love it if you would take a moment to to remind listeners um about your credentials what is your very fun project well i'm uh, i'm another uh grown man duck fan type person so um cut to the chase i have a blog it's called duck comics review r-e-v-u-e should have thought of that spelling when i was making it maybe having to clarify every time but be that as it may you know i was into uh duck comics when I was young and I figured I should, I don't know, try to sort of immortalize them, memorialize them a little bit with this blog. So that's been there for, oh, a long time, 14 years or something now. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it is It is a good span of time. And I'll, I'll tell you what I really like. There's many, there's a lot that I like about about the Duck Comics review. Chief on the list is, is your writing. I think you're an excellent, very entertaining writer. But, but I really like that like for 14 years now, it's probably one of the biggest like magnets for Disney comic fans online. Yeah, these things happen. I mean, definitely, you know, I mean, these aren't necessarily a lot of these aren't very widely talked about. So, you know, if you have a blog title with the name of this story, it may very well be the first thing to come up in a search results just because... There's much right. competition. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. When I'm doing a lot of the research for these stories, um, naturally duck comic review, duck comics review posts will will come up high on the list. But you know, the the Disney comics universe has like shrunk a lot over the years. We we still exist, American fans. Sure. Obviously, you, you know, it's not 
in in Scandinavia, you can't like throw a stone without finding a Donaldist society. <laughs> I've learned, but in the states, it, it's it's really useful to just have these gathering points. Like I, there's there's um, a long time website called the Feathery Society, sure, which yeah. is is another excellent kind of gathering point for Disney comics, duck comics fans. Um, there is, of course, Index itself, but, um, but but it's just nice when there are these kind of places for people in the community to to exchange yeah, sure. and, and get to know each other. So so as far as as far as this story, there's a few different reasons, Jeff, why I'm excited to talk about it. Right, like number high on that list is that it just it is one of his most famous space set stories, and then another one is that this is one of the stories that Barks himself referred to as. As his favorite. Okay, did not know that. So, yeah, so I, I always think that it's interesting to dwell a little bit on if an artist has a personal favorite. It's sure. kind of fun to to grapple with why is that? Did, did you have an idea of what story? Because because it's changed a few. Do you remember any of the stories that he's referenced over the years as his quote favorites? Oh wow! Oof, gosh, might remember something if you know if you mentioned it. It's one of those. It's kind of funny because over the years there are a few stories that you can find evidence for as Carl Barks' favorite. Sure, but, but that also makes sense. He had sure. a long career and a lot of stories. So yes. like this joins the rank of I believe. Lost in the Andes, okay, yeah, Omelette. Sure. At one point, he referenced Land of the Totem Poles as <laughs> one of his favorites, which is certainly not a favorite of mine, but to each <laughs> no. their own. So we're later in his career, and I believe this is something that he mentioned at, at some point in the 70s. Oh, so this, this was kind of one of his last, quote, favorite stories. Jeff, I had, I had this whole shtick that I thought um, I might start with. I thought I might open with uh, some spiel about him. How I'm so excited to talk to you about Island in the Sky, the great Mickey Mouse um, <laughs> adventure with Dr. Einmug. Yeah, um, I'll readjust. It's, uh... It is funny. They both have the same name. That's a really famous Floyd Gottfordson story. And yeah, I just, I, I remember when I did an episode where I got to talk a little bit about Gottfordson because I was talking about Bark's Mickey adventure. Right. There was a funny exchange that the two comics legends had with each other at a meeting in the 70s where it, it went something to the effect of during the during this dinner party, Gottfordson was asked, you know, what what is his favorite of his stories? Which story is he the most proud of? And he answered Island in the Sky. Um, and then Barks, you know, who was very wry and, and, and a bit of a joker, uh, but apparently very honestly said, my favorite is Island in the Sky. So there you go. It's, uh, yeah, they're both solid stories. It's, uh... Yeah, it's a cute exchange. And I, I would probably place that in my um, top few Gottfrieds because I do love that story. Sure, yeah. But we are here to talk about the ducks today. We're going to be talking about this great space adventure um, did you notice, like, when this came out? Gosh, was it uh, 1960, 61, something? It's, uh... No, you got it. You got it at first. Oh, it's, okay. It is 1960. Okay, so it, yeah. It actually came out. Well, here, here's the... Here's the background info, right? Island in the Sky was published in January of 1960. Okay. Um, he, he did create it a few months earlier, and it's a little bit of a shorter adventure story, clocking in at 18 pages. Um, it's been pretty widely reprinted. 
I've got on it per index, it's had nine in the US and 120, 112 worldwide in 20 different countries. So that's yeah. a little bit more than the average adventure from around this time. But to me, the interesting thing is that he he wrote this right at the end of the decade. Yeah, sure. So uh... right. What what are your memories of like 1999, 2000? <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess obviously, I guess decade versus millennium, but uh, yeah, I mean, people were uh, hyped up about it. I mean, there was all this Y2K, you know, fear or I don't know how real that was going on. And it's uh, right. yeah, just sort of general talk about sort of the end of the world and stuff like this. As you say, the end of the millennium was a bigger deal. But I think people always feel this way when when you're closing out a decade, yeah. right? You're, you're kind of like thinking about the, f- it, it really invites the idea of the future. Yeah, so yeah. I, I feel like that just makes so much sense with this story because it is so, it is so weirdly futuristic um, <laughs> yeah. and, and future-minded. What what do you think, right off the bat, before we even get into the story, I think probably one of the most famous things about it is just how, how much it totally throws out the previous rules of these stories. It's it's almost yeah. like, a, like when a sitcom will make a time <laughs> jump or something. But, mm-hmm. you know, Barks doesn't, he, he's never really cared about continuity, but he really, yeah. really throws it out the window um, in this. One. What, what did you think of that? I mean, I really like that. I really kind of sort of admire it. It's kind of a lot of sort of chutzpah, I feel like, you know, the first uh, sort of dialogue um, text bubble there just says, in Dockburg, science advanced much farther than the other cities of the world. Just deal with it. That's just the way it is here. So don't question it, just accept it. I mean, and I, I like that he was able to do that. I mean, I don't think, you know, he, he would really have been thinking in terms of like continuities as we sort of think of them today a lot. I don't think that was the thing really. I mean, there's no indication it's sort of a different universe than sort of the rest of the stories. It's just, yeah, just going to do it this way. Why not? It's a, it's a great example of Barks just telling the story that he wants to tell. Yeah. Right. He, he never really let those character details. He's not usually kind of stretching things this far, though. It is yeah. it is a little bit noteworthy. And I, I imagine that that probably rubs some people the wrong way. Good thing. Uh, right. This might be something to just kind of. I, so I'll, I'll put this out there at the beginning and we can come back to it at the okay. end. To me, the, if you look at like how the community feels about this, which we'll talk about at the end when we look at its score on in ducks the the rating is much lower than what i would expect for this story i i think this one is like a near classic by rating art is silly right but i think objectively this is one of his most notable stories so so i i kind of feel like people um that this might just be a really divisive story in that yeah sure i can certainly see that easily you know there's some really good commentary on this one in the um the fanographics publication this this is one of those i I would say that the commentary on those is sometimes hit and miss but um the let's see it was oh alberto beccatini that's Mm -hmm. a name i recognize he did a really nice job with with the commentary on this and i'm just going to note a couple of things that he observes because we can kind of pay attention to it because he talks he kind of talks about two things in his commentary he talks about the inspiration for the kind of retro futuristic stylings you know in the beginning of duckburg 
Mm -hmm. um, number one. And then number two, he talks about some of the fun kind of physics with the the asteroid that the ducks are going to experience later on. So here's what he says about, you know, this unexpectedly futuristic version of Duckburg. He's pointing out that um, the spaceships and the flying machines in the background are going to have kind of an outdated look to them because Barks has designed them in a deliberate retro style inspired by by Philip Francis Nowlin and Dick Calkin's Buck Rogers, which debuted back in 1929, um, which is something that I just kind of know about by osmosis, but I'm not that familiar with. And then he'll mention that the, um, the look of the space stations orbiting Earth are more contemporary and seem to be designed that inspired by the design that Werner von Braun had envisioned in 1952. Yeah, that definitely, I think, has a very uh, distinctive look to it. I mean, that's probably one of the, you know, more appealing things about the story, just, uh, you know, how it looks. It's uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's sort of interesting to sort of think of, well, an artist sort of having an artistic strategy as opposed to like a lot of these um sort of Western stories by other artists. They're just sort of, you know, whatever. They're clearly not thinking along those terms. So, yeah, yeah he, he has see a, what arts could do. He has a vision sometimes with these exactly. stories that, that is more, as you say, more consistent than a lot of his contemporaries. So the way I read this was in was in the Disney Comics reprint. Fair enough. And, and you know, the reprint, the, the style of reprints is not to do them chronologically chronologically so this just this might as well have been an issue after something from the fifth the early 50s or or what have you and and so it was interesting to me i definitely remember reading this story and being like wow it's weird that it's so futuristic but um but the bark stories could vary month to month to me so much that i wasn't really wedded to like their progression. And and later on, it actually surprised me to figure out which stories did get released in what sequence. But, But to the point that like, this always seemed, because it had this like retro future look to it, it actually made it seem almost more futuristic. Like it hadn't it hadn't made it age and, and sure, it could yeah, yeah, still definitely. be a futuristic doctor. Yeah. So uh, there's going to be a lot to say before we launch into the story. Let's take a quick moment to pander to um, international listeners. I like to look at some of those titles from around the world. And so, Jeff, is there is there one of them that you would like to wrap your tongue around? I think it's a Spanish title here is interesting from 1970 called... I don't know how to say Apaches in Spanish, but Los Apaches del Asteroide. I don't know. It's a, which is an interesting sort of a sort of focus that obviously most of these don't have here. Yeah, very specific, centering the the people that they're going to discover, calling them. I, I think the ducks do call them at, yeah, at Apaches at some point. Um, you know, which is like was used as a generic term previously. Yeah, that 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 one stood out to me too. Most of these titles are just going to be Island in the Sky, yeah. uh, or rather Island in Space, maybe more sensibly. But um, I did note that in Sweden, we've got this weirdly long one, Hayakt efter en havet, which is in search of an island in the ocean of space. So I don't know why that one's so like <laughs> florid and poetic. Yeah, let's do this. Let's, let's launch oh. in. So Jeff... 
island in the sky opens up very uniquely for one of these duck comics. You know, the, the opening splash panel is usually meant to signal things about the duck's relationship and Scrooge's wealth. He does briefly achieve that, right? Because we see they're, they're at the top of the money bin looking yeah. at a telescope. And there's a little narrator box that talks about, as you had mentioned, in Duckburg, science has advanced <laughs> much farther than in other cities of the world. And, and so the other thing that this opening panel is meant to achieve is to, it's to hand wave the fact that this is possible, <laughs> right? In, in Duckburg, that, that, that Duckburg, for whatever reason, has just outpaced <laughs> the rest of the world technologically. Yeah. Uh, and, and, most of the, the rest of the opening page is going to go on to showing some of the cool yeah. examples of technology that the ducks are talking <laughs> about. Any of the elements on this that are your favorites that you would like to highlight, so these, these little futuristic pieces of, uh, of delightful nonsense? Yeah, I do. I definitely, I like all of these, uh, you know, the rocket ships here, Earth Moon Line, one says, Local Mail, one says, and then you have uh, sort of also, apparently you have hopping cars there in the top panel to go along with the ships there. So that's fun. And, you know, I like the space station out there to sort of uh, create, I guess, a sense of perspective with a little uh, Duckburg being marked down here, sort of far away. Yeah, we've got these giant space wheels that um, th this is... This is a lot of the futurism that people were really fascinated with at the time. And it, and it makes sense because space exploration was in the nightly news around, around this time. The space race was in the thick of things. This is, it, it really bears repeating that we are closing out the decade. Karl Barks and, and the rest of the country and world are looking to the sky. So this is such a contemporary story and it, it, it's so optimistic in yeah. a way that, that I find like yeah. that, that I long for. Yeah, yeah. Kind of reminded of Futurama by the pneumatic tubes oh, that apparently yeah. run through Duckbird here. Okay, here's a big thought that just occurred to me, right? Before. This this might be nonsense, but but the story is full of nonsense. So so th this was Barks called this a favorite story of his. Um, maybe that means that this was kind of a big idea of his. I don't know. Maybe this is what he was leading up to. But but whatever. Some of those silly vehicles in the background, the little hopping cars mm -hmm. and stuff. Now I'm I'm flashing back to all those background gags over the couple of decades since he's introduced Scrooge and Gyro. There's been yeah. these silly little one-wheeled cars and funny vehicles in the background. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that is why Duckburg yeah. is <laughs> is yeah. far farther advanced. Gyro and other people have been working yeah. on well, these in the background. Gyro's Again, it's probably here. nonsense. Yeah, it's, it's food for thought. It's definitely makes as much sense as anything else, I'd say. You know, if, if I'm to impose some continuity on Karl Barks. Yeah. So at the close of this opener, um, Scrooge is intent on his telescope looking at the sky and he's explaining that he is looking for a new hiding place for his money way out in the wild blue yonder. So that that's our signal that this is one of the story typologies that Barks really likes. Scrooge trying to hide his money somewhere new or some method, new method. Tell us, Jeff, 
what Scrooge has identified as a potential hiding spot. Well, Scrooge here is looking in space to try to find an appropriate uh, place for his money. And, you know, he's actually, you know, not going to underachieve, I guess. So he uh, he finds some uh, little asteroids out there, in point of fact, which uh, this is apparently, if I, if I recall correctly, this is further than anyone's ever gone out into space. So it's a good spot, I guess. I mean... I suppose you have to sort of wonder, sort of philosophically, I mean, if you, if this money is like way out there on this asteroid, totally, I mean, to, totally inaccessible to everyone. What does it actually mean to own this money? I mean, do you, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, this is kind of the same principle as him actually claiming ownership of the 24 karat moon. Uh, yeah. Or um, or anything that he can't access. So this is a fun little explainer that he offers up at the end of the page, right? We, we need to um, t- talk about the asteroids. Kids probably know what an asteroid is, but but it's nice to see this little chart uh, of the asteroid belt itself, which, yeah. which of course is a real feature of the solar system. All these billions of asteroids in between Mars and Jupiter uh, forming the asteroid belt, which um, I think have a lot of a lot of relevance to the formation of the solar system. Yeah. Um, and as you say, Donald highlights how no rocket has ever flown that far before, and and definitely not since. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and and I guess the next sequence is meant to the, the next brief sequence is meant to kind of highlight some of the ducks' trepidation at this yeah. big journey, right? They're talking about how far off it is. Um, and and what a long journey there and back it'll be. But Scrooge himself doesn't seem concerned at all. Yeah, like a, he sort of stopped trembling and helped me measure my money. He's apparently using a tape measure to uh, measure <laughs> his money. I don't know. Right. Yeah, it's a funny visual. You would think that uh, Scrooge would be pre- pretty intimately familiar with how much he has, but yeah. but I, I just like the visual of him with the tape measure in the bin. So the next sequence is telling us in no place but Duckburg would a trip so far into space be deemed possible. Here, it is just a matter of choosing the right equipment. And we get to see the ducks basically go uh, <laughs> spaceship shopping. Do you yeah. want to do you want to tell us about their little excursion here, Jeff? Well, you can just buy a rocket apparently at any old sort of dealership there. So we could have the latest Sorbird Star Cruiser. We could have a Space Start Sky Yacht. We could have a Thunderbolt Interplanetary Express Hauler. It's interplanetary, Mom. Okay, yeah, okay, fair enough. But this is all rather expensive for Scrooge. It's sort of like, my goodness, you're trying to go literally where no one's ever gone before and you're worrying about money? Okay, but so instead he gets the a secondhand Skyfish Space Wagon, which... Okay, sort of a green colored ship. It's not too bad, I guess, but boy, uh speaking of speaking of Futurama, that kind of to me looks like the plan. It does, yeah, you're not ship. wrong. It's uh I do see a resemblance there. Huh. I, I, I am a big Futurama fan, so I might just be trying to impose it on that, but I, I wonder if there wasn't a little little yeah. bit of inspiration. I can imagine. Duckburg must be just like it feels like Duckburg must be the masters of the world somehow in this like so. 
it, it, it feels like this city state that is just so far, I'm, I, I can't help now as an adult, but to think about the repercussions yeah, of, it's hard to... of a city having, having <laughs> apparently being the only people to have interstellar travel. Yeah, it's got to be riddled with spies, I guess. I mean, is this, well, I don't right. know. How secret is this? I mean, is this all proprietary technology? It's hard to uh, hard to really determine. And, and it, of course, it's silly to to impose um, rules on this. But but we're we're big nerds, so it can't. Yeah. I can't yeah. help it. So the next sequence is pretty entertaining. This is meant to convey like how how precious rocket fuel is how expensive and important it is. And because Scrooge is being such a cheapskate, um, he is going to view everything in terms of like, how much space is this taking up? So, so he doesn't allow his nephews to take along their camera or their jigsaw puzzles or board games um, because they would take up as much room as a five gallon can of rocket fuel. Uh, th this is this is pretty tyrannical. This is pretty yeah, awful. Yeah, it's a bummer. You go into space, no puzzles, no games. What are you gonna do? They, the the guy helping him fuel up is kind of highlighting that there are no fueling stations yeah. beyond Space Wheel Five out on the Moon Mars Rocketway. So that's a detail that'll yeah. come back significantly. All right. So you know the ducks blast off, and uh, every there there's some pretty comedic bits here where. Mm -hmm. Every bit of extra space on the rocket is taken up by rocket fuel. Do you want to note any of them that you found funny or that you think merit highlighting? Oh, yeah. The, kid, the kids want to, I don't know, eat something, have crackers and juice. Whoops, sorry. There's a uh, juice has been replaced with rocket fuel, which you need some vitamin C, I think, for this trip. I mean, the practical aspects of this. Eh. But be that as it may, it's uh, crackers and water is apparently the sole, uh, our sole diet here, which is yeah. fun. Our, our ducks are going to be pretty weak and maybe scurvy riddled by the yeah, time. Yeah. They get <laughs> well, I, I remember the other thing that I was going to say, the Scrooge cheaping out on this um, extremely dangerous uh, mission into uncharted territory is uncomfortably bringing to mind the um, the sub submersible oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> fiasco oh, that, yeah. as of this recording, is is probably not more than a week or so. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so for, fortunately, we've got plenty of cartoon logic here to keep the ducks, yeah. you know, comic book logic. But um, but that, that's why. You don't try this sort of thing in real life without some <laughs> regulations. Jeff, I really like the bit where the nephews are putting on the magnetic shoes. It's just yeah, a neat little background detail. Yeah, that's neat. That's... So this this last bit is quite funny. Um, I guess the last bit before they kind of leave the uh, sphere of Earth's influence, right? They're about to pass or they're about to approach Space Wheel 5. And the younger ducks are, are just so excited to see what they notice their last glimpse of civilization. Um, and they have big plans to get a hot dog and a shower while and we imagine they they're about to say well uncle scrooge refuels but he dismays them by sailing right past it because 
Do you want to tell us why he's going to sail fast? <laughs> he was told by whom? I don't know that they charge a thousand dollars a pint for regular out here. So what else can you say? I guess this sort of seems to contradict the previous obsession with fuel a little bit. But I guess it's, you know, fuel versus money. Well, said. I think that's why he's hoarded the, the fuel on Duckburg that I'm guessing yeah, is, yeah. <laughs> is way cheaper on Duckburg. I love this little view of the space wheel as, as the ducks pass it, right? Because it looks yeah. kind of like a 50s diner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is cool. I like that. Um, And, and I love the like fuel station attendant scratching yeah, yeah. his head as they as they sail right past we imagine that no one has ever seen yeah. a rocket ship do this before but but there's never been a, a space captain quite as thrifty as Scrooge McDuck gosh and I love that panel where two nephews are wincing at the idea yeah. of the hot dog uh, that they wanted to flying off into the ether yeah. they wanted to get there so our next sequence is kind of this transitional sequence before we arrive yeah. at our destination um at 40 million miles beyond mars they start to arrive at the outer fringes of the main asteroid belt and and again we've got some great comic book logic yeah, there sure. where donald is just gonna step outside <laughs> and check out one of the um asteroids that that scrooge had referenced being just cinders and rocks do you want to tell us about these uh first couple of um encounters with asteroids jeff well things in space aren't necessarily what you're going to anticipate so first we have this asteroid which lacks structural integrity so donald's just gonna fall straight through it and fortunately scrooge there with his butterfly net to uh as you you know you gotta bring to uh catch him there so then lesson learned you think you think maybe well the next asteroid we assume it's going to be the same, but we are incorrect because it's more like a foam rubber pillow. So they get a uh, gunk all over their ship. And then we have these uh, cool shaped asteroids that they can't possibly be inhabited. It's just not happening. Such weird right. things could never, nobody could ever live there. But, you know, other people might have a different perspective. Right. Yeah, that, that's a cute little sequence, right? Because we've got the nephews pondering what you're what you're saying about those about those weirdly shaped asteroids saying um oh they look as if they've been carved but who could carve them it's plain no creatures could live on them and then a couple of little aliens pop out of the cone of one of them and and repeat the nephew's exact dialogue about it, it yeah. being uh, an asteroid that moves and nothing could possibly live on it. It's most oddly carved. There's just some really neat imagery on these couple oh, of pages. Yeah. It's it is in that like Bark's vein of what I would call delightful nonsense, but it's extremely just appealing. I love that little you know moment where they squeeze through the very like flexible asteroid. I don't even know what it is they're brushing off. What what is the goop in the yeah, interior of it but but it looks cool um and then any any one of these things that the ducks are discovering is kind of one of the like scientific discoveries <laughs> of the ages but of course duckburg probably knows yeah all about this by now uh let's see so what are we we're, we're just arriving jeff on page eight of this 18 page story um and and this is this is the point where we're going to come to the story's destination the 
that the the pair of asteroids that are going to concern most of the rest of it. I never really clocked how what portion of the story it is, but um, but it's I guess it's most of it. Do you want to tell us about what they finally encounter after six hundred and ten asteroids, none of which have <laughs> suited Scrooge? Well, they come to a to a verdant asteroid, an asteroid with trees, as it turns out, and you know all kinds of fish, rice, all things like this. So yeah, I mean, it really uh sort of after the vastness of space, all this sort of dark stuff, sort of seeing this uh sort of paradisical um places sort of a cool contrast i think it really is it's um it's a really i think it's a really enchanting sequence it's a very cool discovery it's the big um it's one of the big payoffs here of the story and uh, i always loved reading this as a kid just just the idea of an of an eden um <laughs> barks has done things like this a few times but this is like the most edenic the, the most, you know, you said paradisical, that this is, this is really something. It's really beautiful, just covered with fruit trees. It is, it is really a paradise. And I didn't think about it too much as a kid, but, you know, these days I'm like, I wonder what kind of mass, how massive a body uh, does it need to be before it can like grow trees and maintain an atmosphere and yeah, all yeah. this. And obviously there's no point in pondering that. Like it's it's just for fun. But um, but I, I think I'm pretty confident in saying that this, this looks much smaller than Earth's moon. Does right? so so we need some real comic book logic or some other rules of physics for this to actually like work as the kind of body that can keep animals and birds and trees and so forth um here. So let's see what what's note the the things that are notable about this is that um, the ducks don't see any people they do see lots of edible plants and and animals so it is a great opportunity for them to like fill up their pantry obviously they've used up a lot of the rocket fuel and they have plenty of room um, but Scrooge is concerned because there's air and gravity. Um, that, you know, landing and blasting off is going to consume a lot of fuel. So th this is really good because Barks is establishing some stakes to mm -hmm. this decision. Right. Um, and, and he's setting it up so that it doesn't need to be explained later. This is really nice storytelling. I like this. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, um, so Donald's going to employ Scrooge's electronic brain. I think this is the second time we've seen it in an adventure story after Moneywell. Um, to calculate, which it, it tells us that they can land twice and still have enough fuel to get back to Duckburg. I like the quaint supercomputer. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Um, so Scrooge, you know, he okays the landing. They do make sure they kind of poke against the ground because experience has taught them. And and at this point, they get to feast. Yeah. They, what, what do you think about this sequence here, Joe? Yeah, it's very... Uh... Sort of the sense of plenitude with doubt some grapes, you know, banana, watermelon. Is Scrooge eating something? It's sort of hard to tell in that background. Yeah, I think he's got a banana. Oh, yeah, probably. It's uh yeah, that's cool. And just uh, you know, okay, few on the way out, we had to deal with these just water and crackers here, blah. But on the way back, we have all this fruit here to uh hopefully it'll be more pleasant. Right. 
and and it let them fend off scurvy. Yeah, exactly. Um, I like that there's a little hand waving panel where Scrooge ponders the warmth that oh, yeah. grows <laughs> these groceries must come from inside the asteroid. Mighty little reaches here from the sun, and Donald uh, just chuckles as if anybody cares. <laughs> Sounds reasonable I, to me. <laughs> so I I love that exchange. It seems like it's doing two things at the same time to me. Um, it's it's Donald saying I I don't care where these groceries came from. I just care that they're available to us. Um, and it, it also seems to be like I don't care, and we readers don't care yeah, about yeah. the reason behind um, why this is all working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it feels like Bark's um, almost successfully having his cake and eating it too. Like, yeah. okay, here's my hand waving for why this works, and but you don't really care anyway, do you? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and and this is a neat moment, right? We they the ducks depart from this paradise asteroid, and immediately as they leave, Scrooge gets this like delighted, uh, hungry expression on his face because they see this smaller asteroid um, right there that's more barren and desolate, but it seems to be perfect for his his purposes. So I like that they didn't yeah. notice it because they were distracted by the pretty one. Um, that seems that's that's just a neat storytelling touch for me. And I also like the contrast between Scrooge being more excited at the piece <laughs> of desolation than the right. paradise. Uh, Jeff, do you want to tell us about about this second asteroid? Well, the second asteroid it does seemingly have an atmosphere since we see some uh, some birds here nesting on it, but it's much. I don't know, more barren than the uh, the other moon here. There's uh, just sort of birds, caves, Donald patting a bird in one panel. It's kind of cute looking. Yeah, and then the sort of, we think, oh, this is perfect, it's deserted, there's no problem, but then these people appear. So not to get ahead of ourselves, but... Yeah, there's oh, there's a lot to say about this page, right? It's um, the, the ducks have, they, they have to kind of really commit to this one. Right. Because this is, as as the electronic brain told us, it's going to be their last time that they can land and then take off again. Um, So Scrooge is really committing to this, but it does seem perfect. I like he's talking about the process that he's going to go through. And as he's explaining what his setup is going to look like, um, Donald is just thinking to himself, seems to me that money isn't worth that much trouble. Yeah, that's that's a good uh, contrast between them for sure. And then we've got the ducks kind of pondering how weird it is that there's nothing growing on this asteroid, uh, even though it's right there. Um, and I guess we're meant to think that these birds must be nesting here, that that these they look kind of like seabirds. Um, and it seems like they're flying back and forth between maybe because their their eggs are safer when they nest on this. So, yeah, they're, they're talking about how those birds seem to be the only living things there when, as you say, they they turn around. The moment when they see these people is pretty striking, right? Because they show up so unexpectedly yeah. and, and they're in between the ducks and their ship. So it's a it's a frightening moment for the ducks. But but the reader's not really too frightened, I would I would guess, because Probably. do you want to tell us um tell us about the the locals? Well, the locals are uh somehow some scientific anyway, they're displaced on Native Americans somehow or sort of little 
caricature-esque versions of same, sort of similar to Land of the Pygmy Indians looking, I guess, here. And yeah, <laughs> that's what they are. Yeah, it, I don't know if it's the same in every printing, but um, in... What, what, what printing are you using? I'm just looking at the original. Uh, are they blue in that one? They are not blue no. here. Yeah, so in I always associated them um, as being blue, but in the original, in, in the fan, in, in both the original and fanographics, they're just kind of like they they look more human because in yeah. this Disney Comics reprint, they were um, they were given like a light blue coloring, huh. which wow, I, I don't know if that's meant to inoculate them against you know the fact that they do. They do look, as you say, like a caricature of Native Americans. You know, Jeff, I've part of this podcast is like reflecting on how these comics do and don't age well. And I, I'm I'm inclined a, like a little bit more generously towards this one than some of Bark's like native representations, just just because of what he's going for here. Now, sure. That's not that's not to say that like I totally understand if someone were to take offense to this, especially like who am I to tell uh, like a native person of of whom I, I I'm from Arizona, so like I actually know native people and have mm-hmm. talked to them about why these representations like do bother them. So I should stipulate that. Mm-hmm. But but in the grand scheme of things, what Barks is like setting up here is pretty cool because this is like an analog for the the, the clash, the crash between civilization, right? Columbus um, or the conquistadors essentially landing on the, the new world and just inflicting untold devastation and mayhem. Yeah, that's wow. Yeah, I haven't. On the native people. So, so I, I can forgive. I can forgive it to to a, a to an extent. Sure, yeah, because actually, what he's no, it's really interesting. I mean, it's maybe it's obvious, I guess, but I hadn't really uh, thought of it before as sort of an analog for a sort of you know colonization, sort of you know westward uh, travelers here. So yeah, I mean, there is, I mean, clearly there is a a reason, like a justification for them to you know look like this. There's it's not just not just for no reason. So yeah. Right. Does, uh... Right, exactly. And this is not something I necessarily picked up as a kid. Um, but on the other hand, Barks is going to code this pretty explicitly. So I don't think this is something that I'm like projecting on it. Sure. Um, and and all most of this interaction kind of goes the classic way that things are thought to have gone, right? Scrooge and Donald are going to dive behind the rocks and <laughs> Scrooge... He calls them warlike savages, mm. and and you know Donald Donald is is very afraid of them. But the nephews approach them very calmly, hold up their hand in a friendly manner, and say howdy. Um, and at that point, all of the the little locals bow as Scrooge says they kneel like the ancient. And say again. Just because I'm quoting Scrooge, they kneel like the ancient savages kneeled to explorers. So, you know, that is explicitly what he is referencing. Does it really not say to Columbus and that one you're looking at? Does it say to explorers? Oh, you're right. They've changed it in. I need to reference my fan. I I usually the fanographics are a little bit bigger. So they're, you know, a little more cumbersome sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
but this is a great catch here. So, so it says in the original that they kneel like the American savages kneeled to Columbus. Yeah. And in the one that I read, the Disney comics reprint from, I don't know, is this 92 or something? Um, they've kind of rewritten it to say they kneel like the ancient savages kneeled to explorers. Isn't it interesting <laughs> that they, they like, removed columbus instead of the word savage making it try to sound more generic i guess to uh but but yeah he's explicitly evoking this like you know uh yeah, this yeah, this well, crash so. this meeting between the um, the american indians and and columbus um so, so this next panel where donald calls scrooge columbus mcduck in the original which yeah they they did, and you can see it in the like weird spacing in the Disney Comics reprint. Donald says, "That's right, Explorer McDuck. <laughs> They'll do anything you tell them to. So get so go out there and tell them to get lost." Right. So so that's what the bigger ducks are interested. In. They're 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 scared of them. Um, they want to get them out of the way. The nephews are curious though more open-minded they're trying yeah. to communicate with sign language how do they live on this bare rock what do they eat um and yeah, donald yeah. is is concerned that oh they'll eat us if we don't get out of here mm -hmm. but um but at that point you know that they do the little locals do try to communicate they're just saying ick 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 and and this sequence is this next sequence is going to take a bit of a turn. Any thoughts on that last part we just talked about? Yeah, I mean, I think it does uh, does make a good uh, good contrast between uh, the nephews and their uncles there, with their nephews actually sort of being concerned about the people, about sort of their situation, whereas the older people are more self interested. Let's say right. Yeah, they're they're just interested at this point in in getting out safely. Um, but before they can do that, Scrooge has realized they need to like repump the fuel to bring all the tanks to an even level. And and so Donald is going to make this, you know, fatal grim mistake. Do you want to tell us about what he does? Well, it turns out in spite of the concern about just bringing fuel, they also brought this big old revolver along that Donald's going to fire into the air to uh, chase everyone away. But unfortunately, this also has the effect of chasing the birds away here, whom the natives need for uh, for food, for their eggs. So Yeah, um, yeah the nephew try to kind of calm things saying that he's only bluffing but um but they're all staring at the the birds flying away and this this is cataclysmic right this is yeah, uh, this is donald has just inadvertently we're, we're imagining that you know that the birds are are maybe maybe scared off permanently right we don't know but but if it takes them too long to come back, the, the source of eggs seems right. to be their only food. So this is basically Donald has just accidentally genocided these people. <laughs> Great job. Well, at least it was. An um, right. And and he is so single minded that um, he starts to harvest some eggs for their return trip before realizing, you know, that this has sent them into a rage because this is their only source of food. So, Jeff, I read something really interesting. I think this was in the Fanographics commentary. This, like, brash move where Donald fires off this revolver. You know, it's very careless. His expression to me almost reads as if he's just he's just excited to project some power to, 
to fire um, his gun off. I, I I don't know if this is true, but but the commenter the 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 writer says that this is the last time Donald is ever going to wield a gun. Huh. Um, you know, I, I maybe I should have mentioned this after the moment that he yeah. is going to he's going to destroy that gun in a moment, you know, in kind of a, a fit of shame and remorse. And and it, it seems like symbolic. I don't know if this was intentional on Bark's part, um, but it really seems noteworthy if that's true, that that he's never going to, you know, handle a gun again. So this this really does change the natives, um, the locals, uh, you know, posture towards the ducks. Donald threatens them, don't get tough with me, pipsqueaks, or I'll shoot my bang bang again. And they um, they whack the precious egg out of his hands with another local making sure to catch it. And uh, Donald goes to paddle these little bratniks. Um, but finds that their posterior is like that, that it's as hard as iron. Um, and, and it takes a turn here. They, um, they get captured by them uh, with, with Scrooge being, he, he's the only one who's safe in the rocket. He is able to barricade himself in there. At this point, you know, the shots that he fires aren't going to scare them off because they are just too mad. It's certainly uh significant, the, uh, you know, see if we can translate it with our Junior Woodchuck's guidebook, their language, which, yeah, I mean, if we're taking it seriously, why wouldn't we? This seems to suggest they must have some connection to, uh, to you know, to Earth languages in some way if it's able to do that. So that's an interesting uh, thing to contemplate a little bit. Right. Well, that could possibly yeah. The um the this I guess this is the first instance I think this is the first instance of the Woodchuck's guidebook being used to translate something extraterrestrial, but that's that's what it is. It's it's <laughs> yep. it's the Junior Woodchuck's plot device, you know. Sure. Yeah. So the nephews are able to figure out that they're talking about food, but instead, as Donald fears of talking about eating the ducks, we actually get confirmation that the um the those bird eggs were their only food supply. And so um, it's kind of left hanging, but now that the birds have been scared off the asteroid, you know, we see all the little locals desolately looking up at where the birds have flown off to. So um, the nephews counsel Scrooge to throw out a, a peace offering. <laughs> Do you want to tell us how Scrooge responds? Well, <laughs> Scrooge feels like apparently he's going to be stuck in this rocket, I don't know, forever, months, years. So he needs to save all this food that he doesn't want to throw out. But then again, maybe he can throw out a melon because they'd spoil. Or maybe that's just his justification for being generous, slightly generous. I mean, he is using it as a weapon, so I'm not sure how, you know, what the exact motives are. But yeah, so he hurls this watermelon at the people and they appreciate it. And this lets yes. the uh, nephews escape. Right. Yeah, they're distracted when they all go. Um, it's interesting that they all recognize it as food. You know, maybe, I mean, maybe it's universal enough, but uh, maybe they, maybe at one point, this little barren rock could support it. I don't know. So the ducks are going to quickly take advantage. At least Scrooge <coughs> wants to take advantage of their distraction of blast off. But um, Huey, but one of the nephews says, no, we won't. We're not blasting off until we've given every bite of this food to these pantryless people. 
Um, and when Scrooge protests, what are we going to eat on our way home? They point out space biscuits and water like we ate coming out because this, this really is life and death for the other people. They, they say that they have just a one day supply of food since Uncle Donald scared their egg laying birds away. Um, and, and I love this little exchange. Do you want to tell us what Scrooge um, protests? <laughs> he suggests that maybe they should just go to the other asteroid if they don't like it. They kind of, you know, eat there all the time. And then the kids, you know, sort of point out the obvious. Yes, you know, why don't they? It's only 300 yards up to the land of milk and honey. They could jump up there if they could jump 300 yards. So, yeah, I mean, this whole concept of sort of these world's just such sort of a such a small separation but seemingly insurmountable there it's uh yeah it's striking it's cool it really is it, it's it really um leaves an impact i think on the reader this idea of just just out of reach you know you can see everything that you can see paradise just yeah barely out of reach. I I want to read his bit of dialogue or would you mind reading Scrooge's dialogue? I just I love I love his wording there. Well, dog on their shiftless hides. Why don't they go live in that big asteroid where they could eat all the time? <laughs> I like that. It's it's very apparent why they don't. But this <laughs> is a nice little like reader empowering cuz the cuz the child uh, the children reading this understand probably immediately why they don't, but you get to feel like sure, yeah, um, like you really noticed something. So that this this next moment here is is very cool, right? The ducks are gonna empty their pantry. As they're doing that, Scrooge is gonna go um, figure out. He's gonna do some figuring, and he's telling himself. The birds are going to have to come back. There's no way we can ferry the people to the other asteroid. We only have enough fuel to blast off once. So it's this, it's, Barks has set this up really effectively, yeah. right? We, it's, it's us or them. Um, it's this big moment, this big decision. And Scrooge is just going to keep figuring. He's going to keep looking at it on the electronic brain. And the nephews are kind of despairing as they're about to blast off. There are no two ways about it. We have to abandon these, they say, these little Apaches to their rotten luck. Um, and we see this. We don't know what Scrooge is figuring the last time, but we know that it really upsets him. So I think maybe we're wondering, is he going to try it? Is he going to make yeah. some kind of big sacrifice? And and while the other ducks are waiting for them to blast off and as they do finally blast off, they say, goodbye, little people. We're sorry for everything. And that's the moment when Donald, you know, despairingly destroys his gun, saying, me and my itchy trigger finger. I mean, um, I'm a firearms expert, but does he really destroy it or does he just take the bullets out there? I mean, he might be, but it, to me, it kind of looks like it's not meant to be yeah. that chamber it's meant to be like rotated instead of swung <laughs> open right. in that manner but as you say i'm i'm no firearms expert um barks does use a big crack sound effect that's though, true that I, is true i read as him him destroying it um and then we got this great moment in this great very cool shaped panel jeff yeah. do you want to tell us about this yeah so we have this sort of uh sort of L-shaped panel there with the um, 
the barren asteroid on the bottom left and then the nice one in the upper right and we can see the ship zooming from the little one to the big one there it's uh just not consulting anyone just this is what i'm doing here so right yeah it's it's a surprise it's, it's Scrooge, you would expect that the captain would actually tell people what the plan is. Um, but, you know, it's for the sake <laughs> of the reader. It's it's to yeah. make it be a reveal. Scrooge says that he's stretched their their sky rescue tow rope across the gap and, and that he has shown them how to use the rope for a bridge. So we even get that like that little sky. Oh, um, but, but we get this cool little moment where the um, they get to. They get to climb their way across. It's yeah. it's really neat. Pretty sweet, yeah. I I will say I think you know this is a brisk story, um, and it it largely works. I think it would have been neat to see a couple panels here, Jeff, of the little people yeah, enjoying definitely. and reveling. Yeah, in yeah. Their, their new paradise. They're just sort of gone after this one panel of them, you know, going over the rope there. <laughs> Do you want to tell us now, uh, th there's this great moment where um, the ducks are like stressing about what is going to happen yeah. to them now. Tell us about that. Well, Scrooge re refigured their fuel supply and found that they have just enough to get back to Earth, not Earth, Donald asks. No, to Space Wheel 5, where Saab, they charge a thousand dollars a pint for regular fate worse than death there. I love that moment, right? Because like the ducks are worried that they've been resigned to oblivion. <laughs> they don't, yeah. they don't, you get the impression that they were maybe okay with the sacrifice, like not okay, but that they understood yeah. it. Um, and then as you say, Scrooge is like, he's beside himself but the ducks don't care because oh, like, yeah. like it's they? just money yeah <laughs> so so it wraps up do you want to tell us how it does wrap up i really like the ending here where were they you know head back to uh space wheel five and the you know wheel sort of holds them in they're out of fuel and then the kids go down have some hot dogs apparently have just figured ah eh, well in for a penny so might as well have some seven thousand or 8,000 possibly dollar hot dogs here. And Donald asks, well, Uncle Scrooge, do you still want to move your money to an asteroid? Donald, after paying for this trip, there won't be enough left to bother about. So <laughs> there you go. Which obviously is a big exaggeration, but <laughs> um, but it, it makes for a great punchline. Uh, I love the menu, you know, hot dogs, $7,000 with mustard, 8,000. <laughs> Yeah, sort of the way inflation seems to be working here. It's sort of, yeah, I mean, I get what you're going for, but a little bit cartoony here, I think. Right. Yeah, I think it works very well in, in the yeah. comic book logic sense. And I just like the notion of this, like, that there would be a general store here, that everything is not planned down to to whatever. Um, Again, it's delightful nonsense. It's a lot of good cartoon logic, but... Uh, but yeah, that's it. That is Island in the Sky. And um, tell us, Jeff, what are what are your kind of overall thoughts about this? One? Yeah, yeah, I think it's uh, I think it is definitely. I mean, especially from this time period, one of Barks is uh, strongest, stronger stories, let's say. There's a, I mean, it's a really sort of good, uh, sort of fairly solid, you know, cartoony, but solid sort of science fiction -y plot and a lot of cool visuals to look at. So 
yeah, no complaints, really. Yeah, I agree. I think this one lands really well. Um, I, As you say, from this era, it, it, it may not hold up quite as well with some of the classics of like his golden age, um, but it really is a stunning story compared to some of the ones that were coming around this time. Um, I, I don't want to disparage this period because there, there are some strong stories that we've covered recently. But um, but this one really, it's just, it's indelible. It has such an engaging hook, the two little complementary asteroids that are such a contrast between each yeah. other. The big idea of basically the ducks playing out the like, the, the, the colonization clash, the, um, the, you know, potential genocide, the ducks are, Bar Barks is clearly like staking out that what happened was wrong, mm -hmm. that, um, that, you know, sin there were sins committed in the past. And um, he's essentially giving the ducks the opportunity to, to write it, to correct it on a small scale. That, that's really fascinating to me. It's, yeah, uh, it's, 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 it's an interesting, yeah. like pensive, um, pensive thought it's kind of like th these two big sci-fi stories that he did you know 24 karat moon ended also with this very kind of reflective morose vibe or whatever yeah um so so yeah i think i think this one is really it's just it's just a standout story on all ends it does have some really cool art some great visuals as you said um so so I like this one. I think this holds up really well. I, I I think I think I like this one even more than I did as a kid. I think this one just yeah, kind yeah. of yeah. goes up in esteem in my that. book. What about what what do you think? And do you think there's any real comparison to make other than what I just did with 24 karat moon, or is that just like comparing for the sake of? Uh, well, I mean, uh certainly they're both both uh you know about going on questionable quests for money stuff but obviously you know just getting money as opposed to storing it as i guess the difference yeah i don't know i think uh i like that they both are at least trying to do something thematically they have pretty different mm -hmm. themes but yeah. some of his stories are quote just adventures and there's nothing wrong with that um i do really like these ones where there does that definitely seems to be a little something more underlying it. Uh, let's see. So I had referenced at the beginning that, you know, um, I, I view this as a really underrated story. If we check in on Index, this one has a rating of 7.6, which is good for number 227 out of all the many thousands of stories rated on Index. So, of course, it's like very yeah. strong relative Sorry. to everyone else. So yeah, 7.6 on Index, that's that's a strong rating, you know, number 227 out of all however many thousand. It's good, like, in the broader scheme of <laughs> Disney comics. Um, but when you look at it just with the other Barks adventure stories, it's only the 67th best of his top rated of his longer stories, good for, like, the 54th percentile. Huh. Um, and I, I think that that misses the mark by quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, that um, does seem a little bit low. Yeah, to me, this is like, you know, it's quibbling to kind of figure out exactly where I think it should go. But this is at least like a top uh, 20 or 25% sure, yeah, story. Sure, yeah, reasonable. 
Um, that, that would be my opinion. Um, and, and then, you know, this one does have a very cool oil painting, or I can't remember if it was just an oil or a lithograph or in what form, but he, um, he did a very neat painting for this one. You're familiar with it? I don't think I am actually. I think, uh, this is new to me here. Yeah, no, no, I haven't, uh, dig that I'll out it up and make sure um yeah it's it's a neat one it shows the moment that the ducks are kind of pointing uh it's called an astronomical predicament do, 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 do. yeah okay yeah i see it here yeah yeah nice it's yeah it's it's a very cool segment um i'm not aware of this one ever having been adapted or followed up you know for like ducktails or anything else like that yeah so i think Think, I think I got to cover, apart from doing our favorite panels, I think I got to cover everything that I wanted to say. Anything um, anything you wanted to mention before we go into favorite panels? Yeah, I think we've covered it fairly exhaustively. I think it's yeah. good. Um, all right. So, so, Jeff, we've covered this pretty thoroughly, as, as is my want. But um, I do like, before we wrap it up, uh, I'd like to check in. Is there a, a favorite panel that you would like to go to bat for? Anything, any, a couple you want to mention? Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, not one panel necessarily, sort of cluster of panels, but the one, well, ones where they're going through the odd-shaped asteroid belts and there's the little aliens in the bottom panels, those are cool. I really uh, just enjoy those, sort of fun to look at. And then um, maybe it's obvious, but also the thing of, I guess the thing of them for first coming to the, uh, so the sort of asteroid with all the trees and things, that's very uh memorable and then also the picture of them just hopping from the one asteroid to the other on the second last page yeah it, it is very obvious but it also really bears mention because it's great i love that one too all, all of those asteroid ones are very cool everything you know depicting the the big um verdant asteroid as you called it is is really nice i like that moment where scrooge is um I like his bit of dialogue about how why don't they go up on that big asteroid where they could eat all the time mm -hmm. and then it transitions to the next panel where they kind of look up um forlornly it just feels very heavy with that bit of paradise right there yeah. out of reach and i also like um this panel with um like once again on the uh second to last page with third to last page with um, Scrooge sort of silhouetted in the bottom left there, sort of saying, Donald, you and the boys get into the launching harness. Okay, and he's just, you can tell there's sort of something that's, you know, something that's clicked in his head, kind of, even though he's not saying anything there. It's, uh, I don't know, sort of a cool kind of moment. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Just that whole page, there's a lot of rising action there, you know, right before he makes his decision. And it, it's it's very frantic, the whole that whole sequence works really well. And boy, that L-shaped panel where they travel from one asteroid to the other really is a standout, as I do like when Donald destroys the revolver. So okay. lots of lots of really cool ones here. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm so glad that we got to deep dive into this one because yeah. I think I think it deserves more attention. And uh, and it was it was a joy to get to talk about it. Yeah, for sure. All right. So um, thanks to listeners for joining us. You can you can check out Duck Comics Review. Um, it is, uh, I think it's a blog spot page, right? No, a blogger. It's, yeah. blog. Well, those are kind of the same thing. It's sort of weird. Uh, but yeah, blog spot, you would. Uh... Right. 
it's on Blogspot. Um, just uh, Google Duck Comics Review. And, uh, you know, I, I, of course, read your entry for this one. I was like, oh, should I avoid reading it because Jeff's coming on? But um, why would I change my behavior? I've I've often pilfered your your commentary when I need when I need something to to think about yeah. for these episodes. So um, so look up Jeff's writings about the Barks and other stories. You get to cover a lot of the kind of obscure Italian stuff. Paul Murray. I'm I'm sure you've probably covered a story from just about every major Disney creator. Suppose that's probably safe to say. I would uh, guess at least one. It's, uh, who, who, it's are your, who are your who are your non-Barks favorites? Out of curiosity. Oh, non-Barks favorites. It's um, well, but I'm trying to. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, he is sort of hot and cold, but definitely Romano Scarpa can be uh, very good. He can also be sort of bizarre and impenetrable. Sorry, Italian people. That's just what can I say? <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, gosh, why, why am I, you know, going blank? I mean, uh, like Giovanni Giovan Battista Carpi is also maybe lesser known, but also a very, uh, could be a very impressive artist sometimes for sure. Um, yeah, I like a lot of that, uh, those sort of old Italian kind of things. It's uh, uh, sort of nice. Martina, even though he's kind of insane, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like to, you know, we are Barks focused, but here and there, I do like to, to sure. talk about other creators. Um, and then you can find Barks Remarks on the socials, on Facebook, and mostly on Instagram. Um, you, people can reach out BarksRemarks at gmail.com and uh, tune in next week when I get to talk about Pipeline to Danger. Nice. All right. Thanks again, Jeff. A pleasure. Uh,